Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. I've never seen anything like this from H1N1 to Ebola. I mean, I've, I've not experienced this. I know there's been a lot of bad stuff out there. You know, I've, I have felt scared and angry and hopeful and worried and, and eager to see the good that can come from this. Lift each other up because, uh, you know, we're doing great things and, and we need that support from each other. If we're going to be humanity's backbone, we got We have to, we just have to hold each other up. Educators across the globe that kind of came together on social media platforms and shared and collaborated and cheered each other on and cried when bad things happened together. And it was incredible. Hi there, listeners. I'm your podcast host, Marie McMillan. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm an ICU nurse, I'm a writer, and I've been sharing healthcare stories through head to toe for the last four years. Check out your podcast feed for lots of interviews with extraordinary stories, trending topics, and career profiles of healthcare professionals. This is the third of four episodes on the topic of COVID-19. Back in May 2020, I interviewed four professionals about their experiences on the front lines and their thoughts about the pandemic. Since it has been two months, things have changed by the time you hear this. Some things have improved, some things have worsened, depending on the time of day. Either way, wherever you are in the pandemic, healthcare professionals are finally being brought into the international media spotlight. So I'm glad to bring you this conversation with Ashley Blackman, a nurse practitioner specializing in cardiology in Atlanta, Georgia. Please enjoy. It is the ultimate. Yeah. I saw your your most recent tweet, which I was going to bring up, which is I'm exhausted. (laughs) I know. I am. I am so tired. Just of of everything. Like, what else is there to say? I don't know. I'm just so Come tired. on, 2020. Bring it on, right? <laughs> it's fine. I'll just sleep through whatever comes next. Cool. Pass. Next. <laughs> next. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. For Killer sure. bees is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Hornets, uh, whatever it is. I don't have words. UFOs. Uh, I don't have early, words. early tropical storms and whatever. Mm. Oh yeah, natural disasters. That could be that could just layer on the cake of twenty twenty for sure. That's a good one, you know. Yeah. But deep breath. <sighs> okay. Um yeah. Ashley Blackman, nurse practitioner, thank you so much for coming back to head to toe. Yes, thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. For the listeners who don't know you out there, can we start a little bit with you telling us about yourself, what you do, what kind of patients you work with, and what your interaction with COVID-19 has been? Sure. I'm a nurse practitioner. I work with advanced heart failure patients. So in my particular role, I see them in the clinic, in the ER, in the CCU, and beyond. Um, They may have just been diagnosed with heart failure, or they may be in stage where they're on milrinone. Um, they may have post their end stage where they've had advanced surgical options such as a heart pump or LVAD or heart transplant. And I work in a uh, nonprofit in a large urban center in Atlanta, Georgia. And as far as my interaction with uh, COVID-19, I haven't had a lot of COVID positive patients directly, just a couple. Um, most of my patients have tested negative, though there were some, especially heart transplants, that we suspected were false negatives. And uh, and then we treated them accordingly, accordingly with a lot of supportive care. 
So it's been a, it's been a challenge. Um, anybody with heart failure or post-heart pump or heart transplant is an especially susceptible patient population to such an unusual virus. Yeah, for sure. Like, especially when you talk about transplant, I think those patients are the first ones that I think of out there that are among those called immunosuppressed because of the drugs that they have to take to oh, absolutely. keep the, make sure the organ that they, that got donated to them doesn't reject them. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> or that their body doesn't reject the organ because hearts are the most likely organ of all the organs to be rejected. So oh, I didn't um, know that. Why is that? Yeah. We really don't know, but the, Heart transplant patients have to be on um, more immunosuppressants than liver transplants, kidney transplants, or or anything else. Oh, interesting! I did not know that. Cool, mm-hmm. but you and I could talk like heart failure stuff all day. So I'm gonna like do my best <laughs> to like bring it in and not like go off the deep end and tell you about my most recent like impella patient. So here we go. <laughs> we can talk about it later. But um, okay, yeah. So. So you haven't seen that many patients who have been lab laboratory tested, confirmed positive, but certainly the changes in the healthcare system have trickled down to every environment, you know, as far as like PPE goes, scheduled procedures. Tell me about how it's like altered your workflow. So I work full-time weekends. So when I see patients in the clinic, it's usually on Fridays or if I come in to help out during the week and then I round in the hospital on Saturday and Sundays. And just this journey since March 13th, the 13th has been intense. So, you know, when it, when everything first started, you know, kind of blowing up and shutting down, our our administrators wouldn't let us wear masks because they didn't want to scare people. <laughs> and then when we really shut down and we didn't allow visitors, then everybody has to wear a mask regardless of where you are or what you're doing. Um, we had, you know, we stopped doing elective procedures. Now we're back to doing elective procedures. So work has definitely felt more like a roller coaster than I've ever experienced before. Um, When we first stopped allowing visitors, we had an incident with some people trying to come in through the emergency room despite security. So the National Guard was called in and for about four weeks um, what? after the that. The National yeah. Guard was called for how, like, how many people? Like I don't know. I So I came in that Friday and I had gone off that Sunday and I came in back then that Friday and all of a sudden the National Guard were everywhere and I was like, what is going on? They said, oh, well, there was kind of an incident with a bunch of people trying to come in through the ER. So I I got the sense that it was like this 20 person family that was just like, whatever, we have to see our family member regardless of what you say and just mobbed the the emergency room staff. So so the National Guard was called in and they um, for about four weeks after that, we had military at every entrance on the main campus posted you're a a non-profit facility you're not a mil you're not a military facility correct no no we're yeah we're totally non-profit in like the bougiest part of atlanta like it is not the bougiest military at all (laughs) is that why maybe the national guard was called in Uh, maybe i don't know different topic uh, (laughs) wow that's crazy because i i mean with the no visitor policy we have certainly had some instances where people have tried to get in and like you know but i have not i mean like i have not even seen our local police called like we have a decent in-house like security force i would say but that sorry that just seems extreme to me but does that extreme seem extreme to you like it seems extreme 
it seemed extreme and I was, I felt like, oh, I'm not going to feel safe, but I felt safer. Like it was like, okay, we're, you know, we're all in this. We're, we're doing what we can to to protect everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody's wearing masks. Now we don't have the national guard anymore. And we still have staff at entrances, you know, screening Mm -hmm. people. And we did this past week have some family members sneak in. (laughs) People are going crazy out there. They're getting restless. And then they told us, I'm like, why are you telling me on the phone that you snuck in and saw your mother yesterday? Like, I don't understand why you're even bringing it up. But, you know, there's only so much we can do. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we've had um, patients too scared to come to the hospital or call mm-hmm. and let us know if they're in trouble. That's been a big thing among different cardiology groups that we've talked about. Like, you know, mm-hmm. myocardial infarction cases should not be going down. But to see that the numbers are going down, it's really people are having heart attacks at home and they're just so scared they won't come to the hospital. And then when they by the time they do, it's really, really late um, and yeah, difficult it's to take care of them. Yeah, we've um, seen that as well as well. I think yeah. I've read something in New York City, the same thing with strokes and how like they're just mm-hmm. doing redi- seeing ridiculous amount of stroke in patient cases, but much later after they you know, after, right. after deficits have already happened. Right. So we've had patients not show up to their clinic appointments. And um, and so there was probably like two weeks where uh, the campus was eerily quiet and had a very low patient census. But as soon as we started doing elective procedures again, it, and, uh, and the governor said we could start, you know, opening up and having groups of 10 people, and now we can have groups of 25 people, um, it was like all of a sudden everybody felt like they were be- being given the all clear to come back. So now it's just massive amounts of patients. We're very full, very busy, but there's a lot of frustration that continues with the no visitor policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting. <laughs> just, to say the least. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I never know what to expect. You know, I, I have always joked like everything's always on fire and I just show up and I just, I feel like that's never been more true than it is now. Unprecedented for sure. I mean, I mm-hmm. I haven't seen anything like this. I've only, I mean, I've been in the field 11 years, but still like, I don't know that there has been anything like this in a century. No. Yeah. Definitely yeah. not. And yeah. even a century ago, you know, we didn't have the, we didn't have the technology that we have. We didn't have the ability mm-hmm. to disseminate information as quickly as we do. We didn't have the ability to travel like we do. So it's just, it's definitely unique in that our our culture and the means we have available to us are so different that even though we c- we're studying away and, and really spinning our wheels trying to get a grasp on this and how to handle it, it's just still... It's it's still really crippled us for sure. Yeah, yeah. Going back to your patients who are afraid to come into the hospital, I think we've seen that too. Even the the institution I work for like put out like a, a public service announcement, like that that they put like you know on the news and like on the radio mm-hmm. saying you know, if you're still if you're having heart attack symptoms or stroke like symptoms, please do come to the emergency room. We are prepared to take care of you. Like we are not right. You, we're not in an overwhelmed situation. Like we want people to come in and be treated, like you said. And um, so now those patients are coming in. Like you said, they're very sick. They've been Mm infarcting at home for days and then Mm -hmm. on top of that starting the elective procedures again just adds another layer of busyness on top of it so i think my experience was very similar like sort of eerily quiet for uh, several weeks unless you were in the covid icu in which case you were very right but yeah and now it's sort of things are ramping back up again and it's just we're gonna i feel like it's gonna be a very busy summer 
Yeah. Well, and that was a, another odd thing was we had, we made all these backup plans. We had a backup schedule. We had people on call to, to start taking shifts in the ICU. And I was going to be one of those people like, Hey, you have ICU experience and all your heart failure experience. You'll, even though you're not expected to, you know, place lines or do major procedures, mm-hmm. you know, if we get, if the COVID unit ICU gets overrun, would you be willing to transfer to there? Would you be willing to transfer to a, one of our sister hospitals? And I said, absolutely, you know, whatever you need. So it was kind of like this holding your breath holding pattern of, yeah. is it going to happen now? What's happening now? Is it happening now? And mm-hmm. um, and then just being like, well, they're, they're holding steady. I mean, they're busy and they're full, but fortunately, Atlanta never looked like New York. Now, Albany, Georgia is a different story since they're a very small uh, hospital and they became overrun very quickly. The people did not, they chose not to social distance when this started. And there were two funerals that a lot of the community participated in. And the next thing you knew that that following next two weeks, Albany, Georgia looked a lot like New York City. So they were trying to recruit nursing students and nurse practitioner students to do clinicals in that hospital just to try to ease the the patient load. So it was that was a little scary. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a lot of the anxiety that healthcare people have right now with like the slow reopening of restrictions and and states and counties is that where the where the hotspots happened like New York and Seattle and other places that you know they went from like zero patients to like 58 in like a 12 hour right. period and it's just right. because it's this novel virus that none of us really have immunity to it can go so quickly like we've seen in countless places over the whole world so i think that that's really anxiety producing now is that we don't like like you said is is today the day is today the day <laughs> like we right, thinking right. about the, the surge that we kept preparing for and we were thankful not to see it you know in many places across the us and and just seeing the stories from the hot spots of like not wanting to be in the dumpster fire right right it, it was it was kind of difficult how do you feel about um nursing being like kind of in the spotlight and being called a hero Oh my goodness. I have a lot of mixed emotions. You know, there's, there's part of me that wants to just do this rallying cry of yes, even though this isn't what we pictured the year of the nurse and midwife to look like we, our profession is amazing. We are everyday heroes. And then another part of me just feels like, okay, um, I don't want you to say that to make yourself feel better about the fact that we're being asked to martyr ourselves. Like when the National Guard were at our facility, I, the, when I first noticed them, you know, I, I walked past one and I said, oh, thank you for your service. And, and he said, oh, no, thank you for your service. And I just immediately was taken aback. No, 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 no. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't like go one day and say, you know what? I want a career where I feel like people are going to try to kill me all the time. I didn't do that. I was like, I want a career where I'm saving lives. And I expect because of Jayco and OSHA and all, and all these other things that we have in place that Mm-hmm. that I'm going to be safe while doing it. And to be in this situation where when this all first started, and regardless of whether it was airborne or droplet and whoever we want to make an argument about, to then be told by a suit, like, no, don't wear a mask. It's scaring people. No, no, you don't. Know. I'm terrified. 
you yeah. get to go sit behind your desk, but I don't. I have to go look at this every day. And then people to say, well, most people don't have symptoms. Yeah, that terrifies me too. So what if I have had no symptoms? And I, basically, I feel like I've had no symptoms and have been infected since March 13th. Yeah. And then the other, another part of me feels like there's this theory that it's uh, viral load based. And so to explain why some mm-hmm. people just have this profound response and, and die from the cytokine storm, whereas others have no symptoms at all. And then you look at people who have really suffered and healthcare providers are people who have really suffered. Like the 11 physicians in Italy who all died were uh, physicians who had either intubated or performed tracheostomies on Mm -hmm. COVID positive patients. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as soon as that came out, people were saying, okay, stop, don't do a tracheostomy. If the patient has to be on a ventilator longer than two weeks, that's fine. Don't do a tracheostomy because the risk is too high for Mm -hmm. you, for the person performing the procedure to be exposed to such a high viral load. So here I am thinking, okay, I'm going to go to every, every day to work and be exposed to a viral load and have no way to protect myself. And that was terrifying and demoralizing and frustrating. And I just thought, I do not want you to stand there and say I'm a hero when I want what I do every day to be something that is honored and respected, but not something that, well, now I'm going to honor it because then I'll dismiss when you get sick. You know, and that's what it felt like to me. I don't think my friends ever would ever mean that, you know, that way. But yeah, once I verbalized to them, like, this is how this makes me feel, they would be like, oh, I totally get that. You know, I don't want you to feel that way. So, so that's how I feel about that. Yeah, I think that beautifully sums it up. And I think there are a lot of healthcare providers out there that that feel similarly, you know, and I like I'm not a veteran. I'm not. I'm not a military personnel have I've never served so like having being told thank you for your service similarly I feel kind of the same way like you know if I take care of you your family member I will take your thanks thank you you know for that but like strangers telling me on the street the signs it's kind of mixed emotions yeah and thanks thanks for explaining that the way you did I think that will resonate with a lot of people what are your sure what are your overall takeaways from the pandemic whether it be personal or professional or otherwise so I had to think about this question for a while. Um, I have felt all the emotions. And because of that, I'm still pretty emotionally exhausted. <laughs> so Hence the tweet, um, I am exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I am exhausted. Tweet. End of story. But, um, you know, I've, I have felt scared and angry and hopeful and worried and and eager to see the good that can come from this but I don't want to be dismissive of all the bad okay so when both adults in the household are using the wi-fi to hold audio conferences at the same time sometimes shit happens and your call drops and then your audio settings get all rebooted to default I'm really sorry part of my conversation with Ashley got cut off, and I'm sorry that the rest of the episode, it sounds like I am inside a submarine, but Ashley sounds fine. My end got all weird, but anyhow, I think the rest of our conversation is really worth hearing still if you can stomach some of the static background. Seriously, stay with us. Ashley tells us like it is and how it should be with nurses and leadership. Okay, back to the show. Hey, sorry about that. It's, uh... That's okay. Mario's working now. I don't, I don't know why. It's weird. It doesn't not like a finite amount of minutes I hope not. I have it you're the fourth person I've talked to today so maybe it's just angry at me <laughs> 
Skype is like, I am done. Anyway, it's going again. Um, but the, the last thing that you were saying was, um, I was talking, I was asking you about your takeaways um, from the pandemic so far. And you were saying, you know, you have all these feelings, you got to feel the feelings and you don't want to be too dismissive of the risks out there, which kind of brought you into the whole talking about um, the vaccine, like the like funding towards the vaccine and like, why, why haven't we, why wasn't the science there prior to all this kind of thing? Right, right. So um, the MERS, uh, SARS, uh, COVID that broke out in 2013, 2012, 2013, um, Novavax or Novavax was being developed to protect against coronavirus. And in theory, it would have been productive against all strains of the coronavirus, at least to some extent. Um, and But its funding was halted when MERS kind of like you know, died out on its own and didn't continue to spread. Um, so if you Google Novavax, N-O-V-A-V-A-X, you'll see that it was developed in 2013 but wasn't completed. And now we've had 230-something million dollars, you know, sent to it to federally fund the develop the faster uh, completion of this vaccine, which is very frustrating because to think about the um, pain and suffering of the 100,000 people that have died in the United States and their families and the pain and suffering that the healthcare system has gone through and just the fear and frustration that people have lived with and to realize that it all could have been avoided if we had properly funded our research is just, it, it makes you sick to your stomach. And so, it's hard, you know, when I look at my takeaways from the pandemic, um, it's hard to look at the good, even though there are, there is good and, and it's a double-edged sword. Like the good is to see all of our downfalls and try to fix them. Um, but on the other end, it's really, it's a really hard pill to swallow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hope going forward, my hope is like, I have a lot of takeaways too, but my hope going forward is that a lot of the way the healthcare system will be revamped because it has to, right? We could, we cannot continue as we were before. I hope a lot of decision-making and policy-making will be science-informed. And I think that's what a lot of my first, my frustration comes down to is like, you were talking about, you know, the suits telling you not to wear a mask kind of thing. Like that's the business end of it. And that's, that's important. But um, the people who are clinicians and are at the bedside, I feel like should be at the top of making those decisions, those science-informed evidence-based decisions and not people who are solely politicians or MBAs or CEOs or anything, you know, higher up. Absolutely. Well, that, you know, brings me, that brings us full circle. Like if, if it's 2020 and it's the year of the nurse and midwife, what we should be bringing attention to is how much more nurses need to be involved in policy making and decision, you know, making. We are almost never included to the table. Now, sometimes we don't come to the table, but, you know, when you look in the past, you know, at our history, um, physicians are groomed for leadership roles and physicians will go into academia, they'll go into research, they'll, they'll, you know, run as a politician, they'll go into policy and lawmaking. And nurses really should be there, not only just as much, but more because we have such a greater population to represent. 
And we have the uniqueness of our patient-centered model that we're taught. We're not taught disease-modeled care. We're taught patient-centered care and how to keep all the balls in the air, how to figure out, well, is this patient really going to take this medicine because they can they afford it? And can they drive, to, can they actually, do they have actual transportation to the Coumadin clinic? And, you know, things like that. Like we're always the kind of balancers for everything that's going on in our patient lives. You know, when we do bedside, we're at the bedside seeing the patient's everyday life and connecting with them and their family. And when we're in the clinic, we're, we're in a different role, but in that same, in that same capacity. And so I hope that the takeaway that a lot of nurses come from with this is that we need to be in administration. We need to be in research. We need to be in academia and we need to be in policymaking. And our, system, our political system is set up that you don't have to run for office. You can just walk into your capital and find a lawyer and say, I want to write a bill. And then you, all you need is a legislator to sponsor it and you can actually write policy. You don't have to be a politician to do that. Taking notes. <laughs> How to write yeah. a bill. I'm going to go find a link and be like, Ashley Blackman told me to go write a bill. I don't know what I would write. <laughs> When, just think about it. I mean, you're like, I need to make some changes. Healthcare can't be the same way it is. Well, do we need better patient nursing staff ratios? Mm-hmm. Do we need, you know, like it could be, it could be anything as simple and small that doesn't have to be written out extensively, or it could be something really complex. Just whatever. If you feel like, you know, the law is lacking here. And we need more help in that aspect, so we need to make a change. Um, Like, Georgia is one of the most restricted states in the country when it comes to advanced practice nursing practice, especially nurse practitioners. And we were the largest geographic state east of the Mississippi and the ninth most populated state in the country. So it doesn't make any sense. You're not utilizing the 13,000 nurse practitioners you have here when you only have 23,000 physicians. So why why can I not go to, you know, Macon or Brazelton or anywhere and have a hypertension clinic or a diabetes clinic? Like this doesn't make any sense why I can't, why I have to jump through all these hoops and then pay a physician to be my collaborator just to practice something I was trained to do and I'm certified I'm certified at the national level to do this so like we're in the we're in a weird world right now where people are restless and they're not allowed to come in it's just causing causing a lot of anxieties for the people outside the hospital and then you know right. I was talking with one of the other podcast guests about how it's this duality of oh my gosh I don't have to talk to nine different family members on the phone you know or you know when they come to the bedside and go through all the IV drips you know a million times all the time it takes away mm-hmm. to treat the family member as part of it which is an important part I'm not trying to devalue the importance of right. family at the bedside which is so important so integral to the health of that person because the people are an extension of that person. I'm not, I don't want any listeners to think that I'm not counting that as an important part of it. No, but I mean, you're exactly right. Cause I feel like, you know, 
we're all human beings and we're all very different. And, you know, you have that one patient that is super, you know, that sweet little old lady that's super easy, but then her daughter comes by and you're just like about to have a panic attack because, you know, you're going to be in the room for an hour repeating yourself 50 times. But then you have that other patient who's, you know, oh, this sweet little old man, and he just gets a little confused at night because his wife isn't there, and you just really wish his wife would could come in and help remind him to take his medicines. Like, it's, it's definitely a duality that we struggle with that now we have to struggle with in a different way because it's like I um, had uh, one patient that I had to tell him, no, I've talked to your wife on the phone. She wants you to call and FaceTime her right now so that we're all technically together in the room to explain to you what's going on. Because when I explain it to him separately and then talk to her, she's like, no, he still doesn't understand. So I had, she had to help facilitate that conversation even through FaceTime for him to understand what his plan of care was. And that's very, that's really challenging to do. Yeah. It's time consuming to be sure. Yeah. So there's this dynamic of like, it being a little bit easier, at least from, from my ICU nurse perspective, like not having visitors at the bedside all the time, you know, there's this element of like, I can get my work right. kind of faster and really focus right. on some things. But this other aspect of, gosh, I really wish Haley was here for this situation or, you know, right. this certain thing that I need. So I, I don't know. I feel like that's, that's where policy could be. Nurses being at the forefront of policy change can be a, a big thing going forward. And it's going to be obviously unit specific and institutions and right. state county, Absolutely. that kind of thing. So um, I encourage right. nurses out there to take charge of what you can and where you see an opportunity for change to, to make it and to yeah. you know, call your reps or, like you said, go find what the problem is and, and see if we can't you know, find the resources out there that will support you and the organizations out there that will support you through that, that change-making process. Right. Absolutely. And they're probably going to be like nurse organizations. Yeah, like the American Nurses Association. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to them. They're awesome. Great talking with you, Ashley. Thanks so much for your insights on, on all these things. Is there is there any last last thoughts you want to share with the the podcast people? I just really appreciate everybody listening and I appreciate your support, Marie. This is just a great, really great podcast and I really enjoy all the positive um nursing stories that we're able to put out there okay thanks thanks so much yeah thank you this is just one piece of the pandemic pie this is just one person's angle on coronavirus i hope you benefited from their story as i have and i hope you think about your own place in this uncertain and changing healthcare landscape and what your takeaways are so far as always, you can get in touch with me at macmillanpages at gmail.com. Find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and all of my creative work at mariemacmillan.com. Thank you to my four amazing podcast show guests. Be sure to check out the other coronavirus episodes in your podcast feed, COVID takeaways parts one, two, three, and four, and check the show notes for links to all the things we talked about. Thank you to Shannon Smith for help with editing, and thank you listeners for your support. That's all for now. Until next time, take care. Take care.